0: they're also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
1: hello and welcome to episode 217 of the uk true crime podcast i'm adam and in the words of ABBA, I wish you a very happy new year. <laughs> oh dear, I'm so Adam Partridge. Anyway, today's story from Milton Keynes has to be one of the most extraordinary ones I have covered. And it centres on greed. But before we begin, I'd like to thank all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That's Robin, Karen Madlung, Adam Stevens, Helen O'Brien, Ellie, Julie Bloom Nye, Theo Winowiecki, sorry Theo about my pronunciation, Peter Harness, Xantha, Sue Harrison, Eleanor Ross and Dina Newbury. Thank you all so much for your support, which is really appreciated. And don't forget to mail me your postal address so I can send you some goodies. Okay, let's set some quick context as today's story is slightly longer than normal by looking at the month and year. See if you can guess when it was. Top of the UK and US charts were the Black Eyed Peas with I Got a Feeling. You may know it. In the news, absolute legend Usain Bolt of Jamaica won the 100 and 200 metres at the World Athletics Championships in Berlin. And in UK true crime news, great train robber Ronnie Biggs, who was gravely ill, was granted release from prison on compassionate grounds. Did you get the month and year? It was August 2009, a very significant time for me, as just a couple of weeks later, my life would completely change forever based on just one incident. But maybe more of that another time. Claire, not her real name, had by all accounts a very difficult childhood. She was in and out of care, and once she reached 16 years old, she became estranged from her family. Even worse. She found herself in Milton Keynes in 1991 and unless roundabouts are your thing, it doesn't get much worse than that. Claire felt very alone in the world, with every day becoming just a desperate effort to manage the basics of how to feed, house and clothe herself. Claire felt like the world was against her. However, Claire wasn't without friends in the area and a good friend offered for Claire to move into her and her partner's spare room. They had a three-bedroomed house and a young son and didn't work. It was a difficult environment as groups of people hung around the house a lot during the day and at night too. One time, Claire spotted a baby-faced man across the room. This guy was funny, entertaining, even charismatic. 25-year-old Edward, or Eddie as he was known as, liked the look of Claire too and there was instantly something there between them. Eddie enjoyed drinking strong alcohol such as whiskey and extra strong lager and he'd been in trouble a lot with the police, even though he was still relatively young. He was always in court for burglaries in the 90s and in the late 1980s had been convicted of wounding with intent after stabbing a neighbour in the stomach after falling out. Eddie lived just down the road with his dad, Arthur. He was the youngest of ten brothers and sisters from two wives. Vera, Arthur's first wife, had died in 1963 from an aneurysm and within just one week, yep, you heard correctly, one week, Arthur had remarried. I wonder if he went to the funeral with his new wife, Sheila. This marriage lasted and the couple went on to have five children, with Eddie being the youngest. The two groups of children from different mums never got on and to this day still don't. Eddie wasn't at all keen on Sheila and he used to tell people that his mum had died when he was young and that he was raised by his sisters, despite his mum still being alive. By the time he left school at 16, Eddie had a major issue with the hand that he thought he'd been dealt with by life. He thought the world had wronged him and he deserved better. But quite how that was going to happen he wasn't sure. He dabbled in bricklaying when he could be bothered and needed the cash, but this certainly wasn't where he felt his future lay. He was destined for better things. Eddie was passionate about railways, but despite this, he met a woman in 1982 who liked him. She was called Gail. They soon had a son together, Sam, and lived with Gail's daughter from a previous relationship. But Eddie was becoming a really nasty piece of work, and the relationship was doomed from the moment that Eddie pushed Gail down the stairs when she was eight months pregnant with their child. Eddie was showing other very disturbing behaviours at this time. Once, he burnt alive the family's pet rabbit and guinea pig as punishment for what he considered to be Gail's wrongdoing. He also battered their puppy. After they split, Eddie moved back in with his dad, Arthur. Unaware of what Eddie was really like, Claire and Eddie started dating. At first it was great, and Eddie was funny and loving. But as we've heard so often on this podcast, slowly Eddie became more and more controlling, and he isolated Claire from the only friend she still had in the world. Eddie then began to bully Claire, making her feel like she was of no use to anyone, totally worthless. This bullying and controlling behaviour got progressively worse, so much so that it became difficult for Claire to get away from Eddie, as he only lived a few doors down the same road. The more that Claire tried to stay away from him, the worse Eddie behaved. The situation escalated, until one day Claire walked along the road to use a payphone, which was already occupied. Eddie pulled up in his Fortiera and began revving it aggressively outside. Incredibly frightened by now, And unsure of just what Eddie might do, Claire opened the door to the phone box and got the other occupant out of there. But just as Claire got in the phone box, Eddie fixed his eyes on her and pushed his foot on the accelerator, mounting the curb and driving onto the pavement towards her. Claire froze in horror, but at the very last moment, Eddie thankfully changed his mind and drove off in a rage. Claire knew that the situation wasn't right, but she was so vulnerable and she didn't know what to do. She fell asleep on the sofa one day with the exhaustion of it all and woke up to find Eddie standing over her with the bin from the kitchen in his hands. He stood over her and slowly emptied the whole lot on top of Claire. He began to lock her out of his dad's house where he lived if she annoyed him, leaving her stranded in the garden. He would just stand and laugh at her through the window. The physical abuse got worse with Eddie finding any excuse to attack Claire. He pressurised her to have sex with him whenever he felt like it and if she didn't agree there would be consequences. Claire's childhood had made her very wary of sex but this did not deter Eddie from getting exactly what he wanted when he wanted it. Eddie used to go out of his way to drive past his ex-Gail's house with Claire in the car to keep pointing out where she lived. He was bitter about the relationship and he used to tell Claire that one day he was going to get her when the time was right and Claire didn't doubt it for a moment. Claire's fear tripled when she realised that she was pregnant with Eddie's baby in 1991. To say that Eddie was not best pleased with the news is an understatement and he made Claire's life even more of a misery. Claire realised that this was a time when she had to make a change, difficult as it was, to protect her unborn child and she told Eddie that they were finished and refusing to see him as best she could. Eddie dealt with this by standing out on the street and shouting Claire's name over and over again. Claire's friends where she was living tried to offer Claire support but one night Eddie, who was high on drugs, smashed a pane of glass next to the door to gain entry to see Claire. Claire, her friend, the boyfriend and their baby son, were all sitting in the living room when Eddie burst in, shouting and screaming at everybody. Claire's friends eventually just got up and went to bed, frightened for their own safety. Claire pleaded with them not to leave her, but they did. They did not call the police or phone anyone to come and help. Eddie flew into a rage, screaming abuse at Claire and flicking his cigarette ash at her. Claire tried to run towards the safety of her friend's bedroom, but Eddie caught up with her and shoved her into the baby son's compact bedroom. As Claire looked around the Thomas the Tank Engine wallpaper, with matching bedding in the child's room, she knew that she was in big trouble. She started screaming and shouting, but this only incensed Eddie further and he began punching Claire around her head and ears. Eddie told Claire that every time she screamed, he would punch her again and again. Claire feared for her life, feeling like Eddie's punches were caving her head in. Then Eddie undid his trousers and tried to force himself on Claire as she scrambled to escape. Again, this only served to worsen his mood, and despite Claire's resistance, Eddie then raped her. Afterwards, Eddie had a rare moment of calm. Claire thought she would use this opportunity to try to reason with him, saying, It's alright, it's just one of those things. You're just drunk. Go home. Claire wanted with all her might to scream for help again, but she was now beginning to think that if she did this, Eddie would just kill her. He stumbled out of the room and started to go downstairs. and Claire thought her nightmare might be over for the night but at the bottom of the stairs, Eddie changed his mind. He turned and came back up. The physical abuse began again and again, with Claire once more genuinely thinking that she was going to die. He then raped Claire again, whilst all the time physically and verbally abusing her. Through the horror, her so-called friends stayed in their room for the four hours of the ordeal that she went through that night. Finally, Eddie left the house, and before he did, he scribbled out a note of apology to Claire. Claire put the chain across the door in case he came back and ran to her friend's room to beg for help. Finally, seeing the situation, they called 999. An ambulance was called to treat Claire's many wounds, her head and ears were bleeding and her poor body was battered and bruised. She feared for the four-month-old baby growing inside her. Eddie went on the run for two days before finally handing himself in to police, and later, astonishingly, after pleading not guilty, he was granted bail at court. Later that day he went to see Claire's friend's boyfriend, and tried to convince him to tell police that the whole ordeal had been made up and was just a figment of Claire's imagination. Eddie was re-arrested and jailed, after the boyfriend told police exactly what had happened. During the trial, Eddie was one of those losers we unfortunately have spoken about too many times on this podcast. He found it all rather amusing, smirking and tutting, rolling his eyes at the evidence as though it was all made up. He tried to intimidate Claire, making gestures at her from the witness box. But the jury did not believe his story and Eddie Putnam was jailed for seven years for rape. In prison in Milton Keynes, Putnam liked to boast to his prison mates about the control he had over Gail and Claire and what he'd done to them over the years. Upon his release just four years later, things were still not good with Putnam's biological family. Arthur, by now age 74, committed suicide by stepping in front of a train in June 1997. he had suffered with his mental health for some years and the family felt that Putnam's actions had caused Arthur and all of them considerable suffering and worry. When Putnam was released from prison, he went back to Gail, with whom he had his son, Sam. He lied to Gail, saying he'd been put inside for robbery, not rape, and so Gail took him back. When Claire found out that he was free, she begged police to provide her with some support, as she still lived in the area with their son. She was given a home office alarm in case he came to find her, but was so frightened she seriously started to think about how to hire a hitman to kill him. But she didn't go through with that plan of action. Putman had not learnt from his spell inside. He didn't give Gail a penny towards living costs and was violent towards her on many occasions, regularly smashing up the house and then beating her. He also raped Gail and on one occasion had a knife to her throat to threaten her. Finally, Gail phoned police in 1998 who arrested and charged Putman. But Gail was put in that terrible position where she was placed in a woman's refuge and her son was housed elsewhere. Gail just couldn't bear to be without her son and she was being threatened too by friends of Putman so she phoned the police and told them that all her claims were a lie. For this, Gail was charged with perverting the course of justice and given 28 days in prison. Putman's behaviour deteriorated further and he used to make Gail's daughter undress in front of him as she got older. He threatened them all continuously and they never knew when he might turn from being Mr Charming to a violent monster. In 2001, Gail and her family finally found the courage to leave Putman but the impact he had left on them was devastating. In 2008, one of Putman's friends who he'd completed a bit of building work for was called Giles Nibs. The two would often talk about their lives and how they both wanted more, specifically more money. Giles was in his thirties and worked in Camelot's security department. Camelot, the company who run the UK National Lottery. He'd been working there since 2004 and with his access both thought there must be a way they could use that to their advantage. Then one night Giles was working late when he saw a document being printed which contained details of big wins which had not yet been claimed. This was it. The chance they'd been looking for. Giles and Putnam began concocting a plan to earn them millions of pounds in cash. Giles had recently gained a promotion and was working now at Lottery HQ in Watford. He knew the systems well, and his new position gave him access to details around unclaimed lottery tickets. They began to plot in earnest. Partway through their plotting, Putman decided to hold a dry run of what he planned was in order, and he invited neighbours around to celebrate his lottery win, promising them that he would see them right financially. Putman later told them, it was all made up and laughed hysterically. What an absolute hootie he is, right? These friends knew he was mates with Giles and suspected that Giles had something to do with the trick. They really weren't very impressed with him and couldn't see the funny side. And it does seem very strange behaviour. If we forward one five months and finally Putman and Giles felt they were ready to put their elaborate plan into action, Someone had bought a winning lottery ticket in a co-op in Worcester on March 11th, 2009. The person who bought that ticket was neither Giles nor Putman, but when there was a delay in claiming, Putman and Giles knew they had a 180-day deadline to claim the jackpot. There had been some trial and error in constructing their winning ticket, with several made before they decided on the one. You may know that there are unique codes on the bottom of tickets and this is where they struggled. Giles printed out near on 100 forgeries of the winning ticket with one of the 100 different possible codes on the bottom using his job at Camelot to get hold of official paper. Putman then went into nearly 30 different shops as the clock ticked to claim the lottery ticket before the right number was finally found and he eventually submitted the correct code at a shop in High Wycombe on the 28th of August 2009. The pair had agreed on what the split would be financially for them both before they executed their plan. Giles was going to get a million, and Putnam the rest. Putnam called Camelot on August the 28th 2009 to come forward as the winner of the draw. Giles listened anxiously as Putnam told the agent, that he was having palpitations as he read the numbers out. He filled in the backstory, saying how he had gone to Worcestershire to buy a car and had bought the ticket by chance whilst there, but the ticket had then got lost under the seat in his van. He told the agent that unfortunately the barcode was missing, which he put down to the fact that he was always tearing off scraps of paper to write down phone numbers he needed. The agent told him that the prize was two million. £525,485. Putman put on a good act, exclaiming, Oh, you're joking. What am I going to do with that? Camelot made their standard checks, and happy with what they found, they paid Putman £2.5 million in 2009. Aware of his previous rape convictions and other difficulties with the law, he denied all publicity. He'd read of other convicts being taken to court for a portion of their winnings as compensation to the victims of their crimes, and he most certainly didn't want to be sharing his winnings with either of his exes. Putman might have viewed his lottery win as a fresh start, but family members had already all but disowned him. He moved to a new neighbourhood and a nice new house in Kings Langley, just north of London, but he was very keen to show off his wealth which really goes down well. And his new neighbours weren't keen on him either, saying to each other that they didn't care for his I-can-do-what-I-please attitude. They found him to be unpleasant, loud and brash. Putnam had told them that his money was from that old chestnut property development. By this time, Putnam had traded in the old Ford Sierra for a huge white BMW M Sport. Putman and his girlfriend were always on holiday flying first class to exotic destinations all around the world. As well as his love for cars, Putman had a big thing for jet skis, of course he did. Putman was still buying lottery scratch cards on a regular basis, in case he could win even more money legitimately, even though the interest payments on his lottery win were around 10 k per month. Giles, meanwhile, had quit his job at Camelot in 2010. He told his new partner, Olivier, that he'd enough cash to get by, which Olivier did think strange, but Giles would get very cagey when he tried to bring it up, so he stayed quiet. Giles told Olivier that he'd worked very hard all of his life and had been quite the saver. When Olivier met Putnam and his new girlfriend for the first time, Putnam turned on the charm, and Olivier quite liked him. He was generous with his money, but in time, his Show off, loudmouth attitude he used to really grate in Olivier, but he stayed friendly with him for his partner Giles' sake. About a year after Putman met Olivier, Putman wrote to his local council, telling them that he hadn't been able to afford to pay the rent, so was on the verge of being evicted. He said he was so hungry he could no longer hold down food, and the only money he had left was from selling his belongings, which he figured he wouldn't need as he'd be homeless soon enough. Over the course of 20 months, Putman claimed more than £13,000 in benefits. Yet he was actually living in a four-bedroomed, riverside £600,000 home with a substantial amount of land, buying various cars on a whim with his money and scattering around 50 of them around his plot, where he also had a mobile home. Putman's downfall came when he then tried to buy his old one bedroom council flat for £83,000 in cash. This raised suspicion and investigations were made and charges followed. He was sentenced in 2012 to nine months in prison for benefit fraud, specifically income support and housing benefits. After this, everything, well, almost everything, about Putman was laid bare to the public, with a female relative telling newspapers, he comes across as a charmer, but he's really a Jacqueline Hyde character. He's won millions, and it couldn't have happened to a less deserving person. He's an absolute monster. His family had had no inkling of his lottery win until it hit the headlines. That he was now behind bars for fraud. Gail was shocked too, with Putman having only ever given her two hundred pounds in maintenance for Sam in twelve years. Even the judge had a few harsh words, saying it was greed on a scale which frankly defies belief, especially in an economic climate when welfare budgets are being cut and those who are properly entitled are struggling to make ends meet. Meanwhile Giles became more and more agitated when he read about the conviction in the local newspaper. Olivier was worried about him and asked Giles why on earth Putman would claim money from the council if he'd won the lottery. Giles temporarily forgot himself for a moment and said he never won the lottery. Giles then got very upset and would not elaborate to his partner, but Olivier could tell that something was seriously wrong. As time went on, Giles began listening to audiobooks about how to deal with guilt. The whole ordeal was consuming him slowly. Claire had never received a penny from Putman either, the care of their son. She told newspapers that hearing of his lottery win was like the worst sort of karma. Claire eventually took Putman to court for some of his wealth, receiving £50,000, which she then donated to charity. Their contrast with Putman was of course a stark one. After Putman was released again for his benefit fraud conviction, Giles went to his house and they spent hours arguing in Putman's office. It was a major fallout. Putman had promised Giles £1 million for his help in the lottery fraud and Putman was refusing to pay up what he had promised. So far he'd only given Giles £280,000 saying that he had to keep taking the softly, softly approach to avoid detection from authorities. Clearly after Putman's actions, which were about as far away from softly, softly as he can get, Giles feared he was being ripped off. He didn't trust Putman. Giles and Olivier began seeing less and less of Putman with Giles revealing to Olivier that Putman owed him a lot of money. He didn't elaborate. And in the summer of 2015, the police ended up being called following blackmail allegations with Putman saying that Giles was trying to blackmail him for money by threatening to reveal information to the public about his previous convictions. Putman told how Giles had conned him out of the region of £400,000 over six years. He also told police that Giles had stolen his mobile phone, broken his CCTV equipment and ripped the wing mirror from his car. Giles was arrested for burglary, blackmail and criminal damage. This was all getting too much for Giles who eventually confessed to a few close friends about the plot with Putman, telling them that he was going to go down for at least 10-15 to years for this. Tortured by what he had done, and the fact he hadn't got his fair reward for the risks he had taken, and knowing he was about to end up in prison, Giles couldn't face it. He smashed up Putman's car, locked himself away for hours listening to depressing music, and then Giles drove to a car park at Ivanhoe Beacon in Buckinghamshire. His body was discovered in his car at around 3pm on October the 6th 2015. A coroner later ruled he committed suicide with the cause of death given as asphyxiation. A friend of Giles came round the next day to comfort Olivier and he told him that Giles had confessed to him about the lottery scam. Suddenly, all the pieces of the jigsaw added up for Olivier, especially in the light of Giles' suicide note which said the following. There is a lot I haven't told you, and while I have wanted to on several occasions, I have always stopped myself. I should have been more open with you, I know, but that's just the way I am. There is one last thing. You know that I've been having a lot of difficulties with Eddie recently and he may try and contact you. Do not approach or speak to him. In the unlikely event he tries to make contact with you, do not listen. He will lie about everything. He may appear sincere, concerned and even sympathetic, but I can assure you he is none of these things. Lock down your Facebook account and remove all photos of me for at least the next few months. Destroy this page after reading. Olivier went to the police and Putman was arrested 17 days after Giles died and quizzed for several hours. But police said there was not enough evidence to convict him of anything and the case got dropped. Putman's girlfriend at the time, Lita, was 10 years older than him. They had been seeing each other since 2006 and they were secretly engaged. Lita had been happy to share in Putman's wealth, with him lavishing her with holidays, jewelry, and diamonds. They own property in Malta and Florida, and Putman transferred much of his money to her so that he would still have access to it. Did he lavish gifts on her to be romantic? Or was it so his money was right where he could see it and gain access to it should anything happen? Still the police and Camelot continued to investigate using Olivier's statement and a three-year investigation by the serious fraud squad ensued. Camelot, unbelievably, had mislaid the supposed winning ticket and it took them a while to locate it as part of the investigation. The case was reopened in 2017 when the ticket was eventually located by a Camelot employee. Putman, then 53 years old, was formally charged on the 11th of September 2018. He gave a prepared statement in which he said he was a genuine winner and he still maintains this today. Putman was found guilty of fraud by fake representation on the 4th of October 2019, some years after he and Giles committed their crime and he was jailed for nine years. Putman smiled when he was found guilty. Sentencing him, the judge called it a sophisticated, carefully planned and diligently operated fraud. You would have got away with this, but quite plainly you were greedy, he added. This crime struck at the integrity of the National Lottery. You've undermined the public's trust in the lottery itself. The Gambling Commission would later launch an investigation into his win and would find Camelot £3 million for serious failures over the payout. In January 2020, it was revealed that the trial had cost Putman a five-figure sum, and you'll be less surprised to hear he did not pay anything towards it. He got around £53k in legal aid, £37,000 for barristers and 16000 for solicitors. In February 2020, It was reported that prosecutors planned to seize the jackpot winnings of Putnam, but that had been put on hold because he is appealing his conviction. I presume that from then to now, COVID-19 has put a spanner in the works of both Putnam's appeal and the seizing of his assets. Whether seizing the assets is worth it is open to interpretation. One relative suggested that with the exception of the house in King's Langley, the couple have blown the rest of his winnings from the 2009 lottery win on exotic holidays, and there was little left for the authorities to reclaim. A couple of quick footnotes to this story. Another lottery winner from Leeds won £7 million in 2004. He was on day release from prison for attempted rape when he bought the winning ticket. Shirley, the woman he attacked, won a landmark case in 2008 which gave sexual assault victims an extension on the six years they had to claim compensation and she was given a £100,000 payout. There is now no time limit on claims. And in 2009, former Justice Secretary Jap Straw came up with a scheme to confiscate windfalls of violent criminals who then win the lottery, but it was scrapped by the government at the time. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's quite staggering, isn't it? That Camelot paid out on the ticket that was in the state it was. Only marginally less staggering is Putman's greed, which is the only thing that stopped him getting away with his crime. Who would have thought that ten years after swindling over two million pounds, one of the criminals would end up dead and the other would be in prison? What is it they say about greed again? But enough about Putman. The people we really feel for in this story are Gail, Claire and their children. They both had the misfortune to become involved with Putnam, but more importantly, the bravery and strength to leave him. It's never easy with a violent, aggressive partner, but I hope if anybody listening is suffering with domestic abuse or knows someone that is, this shows again that the horror can end and there is help out there for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this case or any aspect of UK True Crime, just head to the Facebook group where you'll be made very welcome. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash Crime. You'll find loads of bonus episodes, stats, videos, other exclusive content. And that's it. So that's all for me for today. Until we speak again next week, if you have some freedom, enjoy it. Here in Edinburgh, we are from five minutes after this was released just after midnight in lockdown again. Let's hope that the darkest hour is indeed the hour before the dawn. On that bombshell, please take it easy and most of all, stay classy.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?